0: This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the award-winning historian Stephen Ujufusa about his new book, Barons of the Sea and Their Race to Build the World's Finest Clipper Ship. You tell a rousing tale, Stephen, but maybe you can begin by setting it in the 19th century historical context, finding the start of the race in the Chinese opium trade. Tell us how a syndicate of gentlemen American smugglers became builders of the world's most beautiful ships, owners of some of the world's most respectable fortunes.
1: Well, the scene opens in Canton, China, and the 1830 is so now modern day Guangzhou. And during this time in Chinese history, only uh, Canton was the only city that Westerners, the Fang Kui, the foreign devils, as the Chinese called them, were allowed to uh, trade and do business. Uh, the Chinese had something that the Americans and the British dearly, dearly wanted, which was tea. This was arguably something that a commodity that helped touch off the American Revolution uh, in the 1770s. But in this foreigner's colony in Canton was a, which was probably only a few blocks in size, was a, maybe a few hundred traders from Great Britain, from America, some from France, some Sephardic Jews, some Indians who lived in tight quarters and were engaged in the secretive business of the tea trade. And among these very fortunate individuals were a small group of Yankee New Englanders. There were some New Yorkers, a few Philadelphians, but mostly New Englanders who had the chance to go to China, spend five to 10 years away and earn a fortune, a competence, about $100,000 in 18, which in the 1830s was the equivalent of being a multi, multi millionaire. And the secret to this business was you would purchase tea using proceeds from smuggling opium into uh, China. This was a, an illegal thing, the Chinese government had forbidden the importation of opium in the 18th century, but the British had been doing it for a long time because they controlled India since the mid-18th century. And after American independence, the uh, Americans decided to uh, follow and on the act, uh, a gentleman by the name of Colonel Thomas Perkins of Boston uh, formed a company called Perkins and Company. And in the 1780s and 1790s, he established a relationship with the Chinese trader Hauqua, who was the head of the Kohong, which was the group of maybe around a dozen or so Chinese merchants who were allowed to do business with the foreign devils, the Fang Kuei. And Perkins established this relationship, and he, because he didn't have access to Indian opium directly, because that was British uh, territory, he began smuggling Turkish opium into China to help pay for the tea that the Bostonians and also the New Yorkers and others on the East Coast dearly wanted. And Perkins was sort of the patriarch of what became known as the Boston Concern, uh, this group of Boston merchants that were almost all related to Colonel Thomas Perkins. And he began bringing a number of his family, his including his impoverished co- uh, nephews, Robert Bennett and John Murray Forbes, over to spend their time in China. And they became sort of the... Uh, founders of this cartel, I guess you could say, where they would smuggle in opium, uh, sometimes would be on consignment from British Concerns, sometimes would be their own opium, using these very small, fast clippers known as opium clippers, these very fast, small schooners that would sail from India through the Straits of uh, Malacca to China. And then the, these little schooners would pause offshore at some forbidden port where they're not supposed to go. And uh, this is wonderfully described by one of the partners of the company uh, that eventually became Russell and Company that merged with Perkins and Company. Uh, This merchant wrote about how he would travel on this opium clipper, this little schooner, and they would pause off this forbidden port. The customs official would aboard the ship and say, you know, you're not supposed to be here. And the captain and those on board would say, sorry, we've run out of water, we've hit some bad weather, we need to put it into port. And the mandarin would say, well, that's all very nice. Now, how much opium do you have on board and what's the bribe? And (laughs) then the opium would be smuggled ashore and sold. And then the proceeds from that uh, opium would be used to purchase tea that would then be shipped legitimately from Canton to New York or Boston.
0: And were the Americans bringing any trade goods from America to china at this point in time
1: uh there were two goods that the chinese did sort of want the first was ginseng which was grown in new england and was valued by chinese by the chinese for medicinal purposes uh so that was actually among some of those valuable cargo on the first american ship that sailed to china in 1783 right after the treaty of paris what's the first thing do a bunch of wealthy new york merchants do they build a ship called the empress of china and send it to china to uh, bring back tea, which they no longer had access to, thanks to uh, the British not wanting to do business with them anymore. So ginseng root was popular, and also uh, textiles were were cotton textiles were sort of in demand. But still, there was a massive trade deficit between the young United States and the Middle Kingdom until opium really filled that void. They were basically doing what the British did.
0: All right, and who are You have a lot of marvelous characters in this book. The lead character is a man named Warren Delano, and then there's a man named Abel Abbott Lowe, and there's a man named Moses Grinnell, and a number of others. And these are Americans that find their way into the Canton settlement in the 1830s, right?
1: Yes, you have what was known as the Canton Coterie, and... Merchants like Warren Delano II, who is Franklin Delano Roosevelt's maternal grandfather, uh, Abiel Abbott Lowe, who is uh, a, also a fellow Yankee. Uh, he was from the North Shore of Massachusetts. Delano was from the uh, New Bedford area. But you had a lot of these Yankee boys that came down to New York, got their start and then got their chance to go to China. And uh, they all sort of bonded together during their time together in Uh, Canton. Uh, They really formed a kind of fraternity uh, because they were basically isolated for five to seven to to even ten years. And those are bonds that proved to be very strong when they came back to America. They ultimately came together to finance the construction following the opium war, the first opium war, of the first true large China clippers, the T-clippers, which burst onto the scene in the 1740s and uh, into the early 1850s, and war...
0: Burst onto the scene in the 1840s, not the 1740s. Okay. 1840s. Yeah, okay, but, all right, but how does the opium trade, I mean, what, you talk about the opium war, the first one is, what, 1838, why? Because the, the Chinese are, are suddenly punishing the British?
1: Well, the Chinese uh, emperor appoints a new commissioner to the uh, Canton city, Commissioner Lin, who decides to crack down on the opium trade, which had been technically illegal, but people were doing it anyway. There's a whole complex system of bribes and winks and smiles that was going on. And finally, after the it came down to two things, it came down to the fact that tens of thousands of Chinese were now basically debilitated by opium, Uh, not too dissimilar from what's going on in America today with the opioid crisis. Imagine a public health crisis of that size going on in China. Plus, you had a large supply of silver specie now flooding out of the country rather than flowing into the country. So Commissioner Lin, who is the new uh, governor of the Canton province or Guangzhou province, is ordered by the emperor to crack down on the activities of the foreign devils and also to have the Chinese merchants, the Kohang, led a, who, which was headed by Haokwa, the great merchant Haokwa, to stop this, to stop this business. So he orders the confiscation, Commissioner Lin, of 20,000 chests of opium, most of which are uh, British property, some of which are American property. This is the equivalent of hundreds of millions of dollars worth of drugs. And they blockade the factory district. The Chinese army blockades this district and hopes to starve the Americans and the British out until they surrender this opium. And uh, they eventually surrender the stuff. Uh, and Hauqua, the merchant, actually helps smuggle in some of the food, some food and supplies into the factory compound, so the Americans, the British, don't starve. And uh, there's a wonderful account of Warren Delano and Robert Bennett Forbes and these uh, Americans uh, going into the kitchens of the of this compound for the first time and cooking their own food. And they and Robert Bennett Forbes laughs. The uh, Chinese officials think that we're living on rats and beer, and reality we are surviving on food smuggled in by uh, the great merchant Hauqua. Uh the opium is eventually uh, handed over to the Chinese authorities where it is dumped into uh, the uh, into the sea. The British uh, leave Canton and vow we're gonna you'll use you, for stealing the queen's opium you're gonna pay for this so during the time that the British are gone, the Americans make a killing uh shipping tea out <laughs> uh, for to their country and also to uh, British merchants using american ships and then the Royal Navy A year or so later, steams on back and bombards and shells Canton, uh, is punishment for stealing the queen's opium.
0: Tell tell everybody where Canton is. I mean, it's Guangzhou today, but it's on the Pearl River, 80 miles upriver from Hong Kong and Macau, right?
1: Yes, yes, on the uh, South China Sea. And Macau, even at that time, was at that time was a Portuguese colony. It was one of the. It was a small Western foothold, uh, but. The end result of the Opium War, which China has basically humiliated at the hands of the British Navy, uh, is that Hong Kong is ceded to the British as a crown colony and basically an opium and tea uh, safe zone where they can trade and where the British can live. And Warren Delano is witness to the shelling of Canton. And although he, as a kid from New Bedford, had witnessed the British shelling the New England coastline during the war of 1812 as a kid. And he had no great love for the English. He did say that the Chinese had acted extremely arrogantly and he was quite glad that they were being humbled.
0: All right. And then, but then how does he come back to New York and start building clipper ships?
1: Well, after the, uh, treaty of Nanking, which is, uh, signed, I believe, in 1840, 1843, he sails home with his fortune, with his $100,000-plus fortune, and arrives in New York, uh, quickly marries a cousin of John Murray Forbes, one of his old business partners, and then decides that he wants to go back to China with his new wife, uh, Ka- uh, Catherine Lyman, and he uh, is, becomes head partner of Russell & Company, And he, along with his colleague, Abiel Abbott-Lowe, who remains in New York, they mastermind the construction of some of the early China clippers, which were basically built – the definition of a uh, clipper ship is a three-masted, full-rigged ship built for speed rather than capacity. The traditional China trading ship was a rather bulky, slow uh, ship that was modeled on British East Indian men, and speed was not really a concern for these vessels. But with the opening of China – thanks to the Treaty of Nanking, uh, which opened up five additional ports and ceded the British Crown Colony of Hong Kong to, which ceded Hong Kong to the uh, Chinese. This greatly expanded the China trade and greatly increased uh, commercial opportunities for men like Warren Delano.
0: And speed is now more important than bulk.
1: Exactly. And what you need to make a clipper ship work is to have very high value freight to make the uh, diminishment in cargo capacity pay. Now, American naval architects, naval builders, have been experimenting with these sorts of forms for years. Basically, what Warren Delano, his partner, Abel Abbott Lowe, and others in the China trade thought about doing by the 1840s, early 1840s, after the opium war, was basically taking the opium clipper type, the small, very fast, two-masted schooner, with a which had a V-bottom and very sharp, a very sharp-bound stern, basically expanding it into a full-rigged ship and would see how fast it would go. And they partnered with a couple of very experimental and very smart designers, the first of whom was John Willis Griffiths, to build the first of these clippers, Uh, the first of which was the Rainbow built for uh, William Henry Aspinwall, who was a rival of of Delano and, and Lowe, and the second of which was the Halqua, which was named after their uh, Chinese uh, financial godfather.
0: Okay, these are built now, we're talking, we're in the middle 1840s? Yes. All right, and and does this immediately make a difference in terms of profit because of the improved speed? I mean, what is the speed of the American clipper ship as opposed to, let us say, a British merchantman?
1: (laughs) A British... Uh, East Indian men would probably lumber along at six to seven knots. And if there was bad weather, the captain would furl up the sails or even at night they would furl up the sails. There was no need to press for speed. I mean, the British East India Company uh, was operated under a monopoly, so there was no need for speed. Even though the monopoly was dissolved in the 1830s, uh, these British ships were under no incentive to really get there in uh, quick time. Uh, Warren Delano, just before he left – for uh, home for China, uh, for the for the first time he wrote he wanted a type of ship that would carry large quantities of tea home and fast. And he underlined the word fast.
0: Give me an example in days. How many days from Canton to Liverpool, as opposed in a British ship as opposed to Canton to New York in an American ship in an American clipper ship?
1: Well, a British East Indiaman would easily take six months, and that was considered to be a good passage. Uh, the uh, clipper ship that really set, the, set those new standard was the Sea Witch, which was launched in, in 1847. And uh, she was also owned by uh, the, the rival firm, uh, Howland and Aspenwall, uh, William Henry Aspenwall's firm. And she set the record at 74 days, which was pretty remarkable. And Delano and Lowe quickly realized when they saw that record, they said, We want a ship that could reliably go. From Canton or Hong Kong to New York in under a hundred days, so 160 days to 100 days or less became the new standard. So, whatever ship arrived in New York first brought the first tea home and commanded the highest profit.
0: All right, and so this introduces a hectic era of shipbuilding, both you know in New York on, on shipyards on the East River, but is also in Boston and, and other ports on, on the American East Coast.
1: Yes, New York took the lead in clipper ship building. Uh, New York had, by the 1840s, had become America's leading port, thanks to the Erie Canal surpassing Philadelphia and surpassing uh, Boston pretty quickly. Uh, you had this long succession of shipyards along the East River that constructed by the 1840s, everything from clipper ships to transatlantic packet vessels to uh, uh, steam ships that sailed up and down the Hudson River and along the East uh, Eastern seaboard, uh, there's a misconception that uh, sail and steam, that steam quickly surpassed sail. The two of them actually uh, complement each other for quite a long time. And so at the same time that the first shipbuilders, the shipbuilders along the East River were building clipper ships, they were also building steam ships uh, as well. So there was this frantic era in the 1840s and early 1850s where the East River yards were absolutely... uh, Chock full of orders to build clipper ships. And what really threw uh, the proverbial gasoline on the fire was the discovery of gold in California in 1848, uh, 1848. And what a lot of these China merchants realized was that not only could you take these fast ships and sail them from New York to Canton or Hong Kong and back in record time, if you really p- played your cards right, you could load your clipper ship up with goods, dry goods from New York City. Uh, chairs, tables, booze, provisions, sail these ships around Cape Horn, a treacherous 10,000-mile journey, pro- arguably the most dangerous ocean route on the planet, sail these clipper ships to San Francisco, and then sail and ballast across the Pacific Ocean to Canton or Hong Kong, purchase tea, load the ships up with tea, and then sail around the Cape of Good Hope, to New York City, an around the world voyage. And you would sell these goods in San Francisco, by the way, for a tremendously inflated price because this was a boom town. And in fact, Warren Delano had the foresight to build, to basically deploy one of his T Clippers, the Memnon, in 1849 to San Francisco. And he, this was the first clipper ship to actually make that type of voyage. And the Memnon cut down the voyage from New York from San Francisco from around 160 to 180 days to 121 days. And soon after that voyage, a new type of clipper evolved uh, that in many ways supplanted the very narrow, sharp-hulled T-clipper pioneered by the naval architect John Willis Griffiths. This was the California clipper that was ultimately the mastermind of shipbuilders like the Bostonian Donald McKay. These were bigger, heavier-built vessels that had flat-bottoms sharp ends that could carry more heavy cargo. And it was from Donald McKay's yard that the California Clippers such as the Flying Cloud, uh The Champion of the Seas, The Romance of the Seas, The Great Republic, uh the ones that we remember today really came on the scene.
0: And they come from McKay in in Boston. And and this is now he also the the ship owners are beginning to stage races between their their different ships from New York to San Francisco. Talk about some of the most famous races or record-setting voyages. Certainly the Flying Cloud was probably the most famous clipper ship in America in 1851 when it was launched. And I believe that uh, Wadsworth Longfellow wrote a poem about it. But, but the uh, anyway, talk about some of the speed records and races and some of the you know, famous voyages. The one on the Flying Cloud, and then the one on the, the challenge.
1: I'd like to backtrack a little bit in terms of famous voyages. The uh, Flying Cloud was arguably the most famous. 1851, she set the record from New York to San Francisco in 89 days, just over 89 days. But she was in competition with a clipper that had come out the year before, owned by Abiel Abbott Lowe, who was uh, Warren Delano's business partner called The Surprise. And she was the first true Boston clipper, uh, she that uh, really made a splash. She came out of the yard of Samuel Hall in East Boston. She set the record uh, at 96 days, which broke the Memnons record. So all of a sudden, the surprise became the ship to beat. And the flying cloud was uh, completed in 1851. Uh, she was actually under construction in 1851 for a ship builder or ship owner in Boston named Enoch Train. And she was halfway finished, and, along, and she was also being built alongside another clipper called the Staffordshire, also being built for Enoch Train. And up comes this merchant from New York, a gentleman now by the name of Moses Grinnell, who, like Warren Delano, was from the New Bedford area and had moved to New York. And it was either Mo, Moses Grinnell or an agent of his that approached uh, Enoch Train with a proposition, saying, "I'd like to buy one of your clippers." And Enoch Train agreed to purchase. The Flying Cloud, which was still unfinished, for ninety thousand dollars, which in eighteen fifty one was a tremendous sum of money, and Enoch Train would later say that that was the worst business decision he'd ever made was to sell the Flying Cloud uh, while on the stocks at Donald McKay's yard to uh, Moses Grinnell. So the Flying Cloud uh, is outfitted and towed down to New York for her maiden voyage in uh, the summer of eighteen fifty one, and her captain is a gentleman by the name of Josiah Perkins Creasy, who had been a long time China trade captain for Grinnell and Minturn. Uh, he was about, he was 38 years old at the time and he brought along his wife, Eleanor Perkins, oh, sorry, Eleanor Creasy, uh, who it was not unusual for a captain to bring along his wife. But in this case of Eleanor Creasy, she was his navigator. Uh, she was trained in mathematics, trained in navigation, and she also had a very valuable tool, uh, a book by Matthew Fontaine Mowry that laid out arguably for the first time the winds and currents of the oceans of the world, which allowed uh, captains and navigators to bypass the doldrums and spend their most time in prevailing in prevailing good winds. So she departs uh, New York for San Francisco loaded full of dry goods, probably with about $100,000 worth of goods in her hold, and she sets off. And several other clippers leave around this time. But the one that the Flying Cloud is most in competition with is a much bigger ship. Uh, the Flying Cloud was around 1,200 tons. Uh, the Challenge was owned by a family called the Griswolds, the Griswold Brothers. And she was about 2,000 tons. And she was built to take the record as well. And she was captained by a notorious uh, driver named Captain Robert Waterman, who was known as Bully Bob. It was... Waterman, who had set the famous uh, 74-day record from uh, China to New York and the Sea Witch several years before, so the Griswolds were pretty confident that uh, Bully Bob Waterman would get the challenge to San Francisco ahead of the flying cloud, and they offered him a very nice $10,000 bonus, which is probably around the equivalent of $200,000 today, if he got the challenge to San Francisco around Cape Horn in less than 90 days. Well... Ultimately, the flying cloud encounters very good luck, uh, with the exception of an incident of sabotage on the part of one of her crew members. Uh, many of the crews of these clippers are actually uh, forcibly requisitioned uh, from the waterfront bars and brothels of New York City or Boston. Often uh, they were had a bit of drugs, uh, some drugs dropped in their drink by uh, agents who were meant to get Sailors onto these ships a, a, a good sized clipper needs around fifty or sixty men and by the 1840s and especially the 1850 s going to sea was not seen as a particularly desirable thing to do uh, so in order to get a full complement of men, the captain would hire uh, would hire uh, an agent to basically recruit men from you know pretty much the lowest of the low places in New York City or boston but Uh, One of these men uh, had basically drilled a hole in the bow of the flying cloud from from basically his bunk to basically partially flood the ship and convince the captain to turn around. It didn't help that only a few days after leaving New York, the flying cloud lost part of her uh, rigging. Uh, The Ships like the flying cloud, these clippers, had no trial voyages. They had no trial runs. They were basically finished, loaded up, and sent out to sea. So only a few days after she leaves port, and she's carrying uh, several passengers in addition to a very valuable crew, or very valuable cargo, uh, in, she's traveling in high winds. She's probably making around 15, 16 knots, and then part of her top hamper, part of her upper mast, come away in, a, in, in high winds. And rather than turning around, Captain Creasy says, I am not going to wimp out on this. I'm going to fix this at sea. So you have crewmen climbing up. Five ten stories and re rigging this ship, and then they press on, but her mainmast is sprung. So there's speculation that the crew member, w- a number of crew members, were very alarmed at this thing. We're going to we're going to sink. Our mainmast is going to crack off. So uh, there's speculation that w- one of these crew members tried to sabotage the ship. He is found out, and the ship is repaired, and she continues on. And she sails into San Francisco uh, triumphantly after making. The record in eighty-nine days and I believe twenty-one hours.
0: What are the accommodations on these ships for the passenger passengers and then the crew? Uh,
1: a very vast gulf. Actually, passenger accommodations on clipper ships are generally fairly luxurious. Uh, you would have double cabins. You'd have a main saloon where the cap where the passengers. There might be anywhere from ten to fifteen passengers on this uh, on a clipper ship. Uh, beautiful rosewood paneling, the finest uh, crystalware, uh, uh, canned and tin food would allow for you know some variety. Uh, there's a wonderful account uh, of uh, a passenger, uh, a female passenger on the Flying Cloud, which I rely on for uh, reconstructing that voyage. Uh, the crew, on the other hand, the 40 to 50 to 60 men who are on a clipper ship, they were housed either on a deck in a deck house or housed up in the forecastle at the very front of the ship, uh, very dark, uncomfortable. Uh, there was basically no time off you as any nautical person knows you're on watch. You're either four hours on four hours off. You don't sleep through the night. Uh, you sail a sailing ship, especially needs to be attended to constantly. So in addition to the long hours and very dangerous working conditions, this is well before there was any sort of labor or safety conditions. uh, you would have basically kind of a tinderbox, and Captain Charles uh, Lowe, who is the brother of Abuel Abbott Lowe, he ends up becoming a ship captain. He writes about, in his memoirs, the difficulty of having all of these men, who some of whom didn't even want to be on the ship, some of whom were forcibly brought on the ship, having them get along or work together. Some were experienced seamen, some knew nothing, uh, and... On one case, uh, Charlie Lowe mentions a a mutiny on board where he physically has to club someone or point a gun at someone. So there are a number of these instances. So it was to be a a ship captain, especially on a clipper ship where you're under tremendous pressure to make maximum time. You don't necessarily have a trained crew. Uh, You are, it's, it's a very, being a ship captain is a lonely job in any era, but to be a clipper ship captain, you are dealing with tremendous commercial and human pressures.
0: And the men are not paid very well either. I mean, it's, you know, like Carnegie makes a fortune out of railroads but doesn't pay his steel workers. And Delano and these guys make a fortune out of their ships but they don't pay their, their sailors, right?
1: No. Uh, Delano once said, I, I cannot fathom paying any man more than $10 a day. And he did say that. Immigrants are useful because they actually have a work ethic, <laughs> Unlike,
0: <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so. All right. Well, so, talk, talk talk now uh, about the waning of of the great the golden age of the clipper ship. I mean, it seems to reach high tide in the middle of the you know rises in the eighteen forties, high tide in the in the middle of the eighteen fifties, and then it begins to ebb. I mean, profit begins to go out of the business. The Civil War uh, comes up over the horizon. And, and how does the story end?
1: Well, the California trade began declining fairly quickly after the flying clouds record breaking voyage, because for me, 1848 to 1852, China. Sorry, between 1848 and 1852, California didn't really have its own manufacturing or agricultural infrastructure. So everything had to be sent in from the East Coast around Cape Horn. And that's why these goods, these uh, dry goods, basic supplies, provisions could be sold at a very high price. For example, in San Francisco, uh, an egg would sell for a dollar. And this is $1850. So we're talking like a $12 egg here or a $15 egg. And that's how inflated the prices were. But by 1852, 1853, uh, California began producing its own goods, so freight rates to California dropped precipitously, and there's less of a need for ships that were this expensive, this big, this fast to sail around Cape Horn to California. By 1855, you had the opening of the Panama Pacific Railway, uh, which was the mastermind of William Henry Aspinwall, and uh, this railroad, this 40 mile long railroad across the Panama isthmus, allowed a steamship to sail from New York to the east side of Panama, drop off its passengers, drop off its mail, and then they would be put on a train and then the train would take it across to the other side, the Pacific side, and then another steamship would meet them and then it would go up to California. So it was a regular scale, scheduled passenger and mail service. Uh, and the China trade really was uh, devastated by the Civil War. Uh, by 1861, 1862, the British were already constructing a series of commerce raiders, steam powered commerce raiders, for the Confederate side, uh, often under very dubious uh, <laughs> diplomatic uh, ruses. In fact, Theodore Roosevelt's uh, uncle, one of his bullock uncles from Georgia, was very involved in the construction of the infamous raider CSS Alabama. Now, these steam powered raiders, these British built raiders, such as the Alabama, the Florida, wreaked havoc on the Northern Merchant Marine. Uh, They sank many whalers especially, but they also sank a few clipper ships, including the Jacob Bell, which belonged to the uh, Lowe family firm. In fact, the Jacob Bell was sailing from China with a full hold of very valuable tea and other Chinese goods. And the captain sees smoke on the horizon. He wonders what it is. It's lo and behold, she's flying the stars and bars and it is the CSS Florida this is in the Indian Ocean. The Jacob Bell raises full sail, and she's able to sail at, I think, a good clipper ship would sail from 14 to 15 knots in the, in the right conditions, which is very fast, faster than any steamship. So she leaves the Florida behind, but then the wind dies. The Florida steams up, captures her, takes her passengers and crew prisoner, takes all that valuable tea on board for sale in places like Richmond and Charleston, and then sets her on fire. So this – the the Confederate raiders jack up insurance rates for uh, northern shipowners. This is very ruinous for them. And also by the – even by the late 1850s, merchants such as Warren Delano, such as John Murray Forbes especially, they begin investing – they begin diversifying their fortunes into such enterprises as the uh, transatlantic cable, coal mines, uh, railroads especially, especially the Boston merchants like the Forbes brothers – so, those that were actually hurt the most were those that remained in the clipper ship business, like the shipbuilder Donald McKay, who really didn't know when to stop when it came to bigger is better. He kept on building bigger and bigger vessels even after the commercial need for them had really stopped. The most uh, tragic case of him, of this in McKay's case, was the clipper ship Great Republic, built in 1853. She was 4,500 tons. She was close to 400 feet long, all wood, and he speculated. He built her on his own account. He thought that someone would buy her, and tragically, on December 26, 1853, just before she's about to sail for Liverpool, where he's hoping to sell her on spec, uh, she catches fire uh, when a bakery nearby in in lower Manhattan, uh, uh, there's an accident there, and the fire spreads to the New York waterfront and consumes uh, several vessels, including – the Great Republic, which sadly never sailed as a vessel as Donald McKay designed her, and this loss was this was his magnum opus, and uh, she was reduced to a sunken wreck on the East River. She was raised and salvaged and rebuilt into a smaller, uh, many was more practical vessel, but uh, no one same. ever knew how. Okay, not not quite the same.
0: All right, so now that the game is pretty well over by the Civil War, and it's Really, over by the end of the civil War, and what what happens to uh, men like tell us you end your book with the end of the story about Warren Delano, so why don't you end this the same way?
1: Sure, well, Warren Delano uh, in eighteen fifty seven was ruined by the by the financial panic of that year, so two years after three years after that. He sails – sorry, pardon me. Let me back up a bit. Uh, let, let, let me re-record that. Uh, so Warren Delano in 1857 is ruined by the financial panic of that year. Uh, most of his investments sour, uh, but he still has his clipper ship investments, which he has stakes in with Abiel Abbott Lowe of New York. So what Warren Delano decides to do is to rebuild his fortune the quickest way he knows how. He's about 50 years old, and he decides to take a gamble and re-enter what used to be a young man's business, going back into the tea and opium trade. So in 1859, he leaves his uh, several children and his wife behind at their Hudson River estate at Algonac, and he sails to China and begins to rebuild his fortune uh, in the tea and opium trade, also supplying opium for the Civil War for the Union Army, which was seen as a great patriotic duty at that time. Uh, and a few years later, in 1862, he sends for his family— to travel on the Clipper Ship Surprise, which he partially owns along with Abiel Abbott Lowe. In exchange for this passage, Abiel Abbott Lowe rents the Delano's family estate on the Hudson. And Delano's family uh, sails to China on the Clipper Ship Surprise, and they spend several years there while Warren finally rebuilds his fortune. And by 1868, 1869, the Delano's have made enough money to come back to New York and – Delano reinvests his fortune in other industrial enterprises. And Sarah Delano, his daughter, who was six years old at the time, this is one of her earliest memories, the famous future Sarah Delano Roosevelt. And she sings the, ch- the shanties that she heard as a child to her son, Franklin Roosevelt, and to her grandchildren. And Franklin Roosevelt, where do you think his love of ships in the sea came from, the future Secret- assistant secretary of the Navy, and as president of the United States, the man who basically rebuilds the Navy in the 1930s in preparation for another war. And Franklin Roosevelt, as we all know, was a master politician who in many ways inherited his grandfather's uh, smarts and in many ways his uh, deviousness, in many ways. And Franklin Roosevelt was once asked by one of his friends, when he won the election of 1936 in what seemed like very long odds, "What is your secret?" and Franklin Roosevelt says, "My secret is I never let my right hand know what my left hand is doing," which was a favorite saying of his grandfather Warren Delano the second. And one of his prized possessions was a model of the Surprise, the clipper ship Surprise, which he built himself.
0: Well, I'm sure, were he still alive, one of his prized possessions would be your book.
1: Well, Thank you so much.
0: <laughs> Stephen, I've, I've uh, truly a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. It's a wonderful book. It's called The uh, Barons of the Sea, Their Race to Build the World's Fastest Clipper Ship by Stephen Fusa. Thank you. Thank you. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.